text this morning is a little longer, so uh, we'll be reading it as we go. Uh, But I hope you'll go ahead and turn uh, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 and verse 13, where we're starting today. This is um, the largest section of text we've taken on in one go so far in our study of Mark. Um, So we could have chopped this up into several different pieces if we wanted to, um, but there is this common theme through these four scenes that we're going to see here in this text. Um, And so we've chosen to kind of link them together and to talk about them together because of this this common thread. Um, But as way of outline to kind of just help you get uh, set up, uh, let's just kind of get a, a pattern for the text, okay? So um, this guy named Jason Meyer gave a helpful pattern that you can see in all of these scenes. Um, so if you're writing stuff down, uh, you can see this pattern, scandal, challenge, answer, right? So scandal, challenge, answer. If you're just kind of looking through each of these four little moments, you're going to see that pattern on display again and again. And hopefully, you did the study guide last week. Hopefully, you're in the 930 discussion. And so this, uh, this text is already kind of there, and you're knowing the stories in your head. Um, but in case, in case you're not familiar, uh, you're coming in cold, um, we'll do a quick overview of these four scenes. But before we, we dive right into the text, let's just take a moment um, to pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, for this time we have to look at it, to consider it, to be exposed by it, to learn something about who Christ is and who we are through it. I pray that you will convict us, that you will direct us, that you will guide us, that you will teach us, and that your spirit will apply the words of this gospel of Mark to our hearts and to our lives, so that we might live in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we can kind of separate these into two different groups. The first two stories, we've got four scenes here, right? And you can notice if you're looking in your Bible, you can kind of see there's four little headings probably for most of you that are separating out these different scenes. Um, The first two, I kind of think of them as feasting and fasting, and the second two I think of as Lord of the Sabbath, So if you're like, okay, I just need to organize this in my brain, maybe that's helpful to you. But let me just really quickly um, recap for you what these stories are. We're going to dive into and really eat up the text in a minute. But I want you to get a big picture of you first with this pattern in your head, the scandal challenge answer pattern. I want you to hear that and have that rolling through your head while we just kind of go through these, these scenes real quick. So I call them scenes because in my brain, my brain operates like, um, like a movie. And so uh, when I have these different moments, I view them as scenes in a movie, right? And my head just automatically creates the, the moment. Um, and so when I say scene, that's what I'm talking about, if that's confusing to you. You might say story. You might say the fancy word is pericope. That's just pretentious. So I'm not going to use that word. Um, so we'll just say scene, okay? So first one. Uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees Matthew, Levi, uh, the tax collector, sitting in his tax booth, and he says, come follow me. Levi gets up and follows him. Great. Then we see Jesus back at Levi's house having this big feast and party with other tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees come up and they say, hey, why is he eating with these people? That's not okay. Uh, and Jesus says, 
Well, here's the deal. Sick people need a hospital, need a physician, not well people. Um, And I came here to call sinners, not to call righteous people. Okay, that's first scene. Second scene, and you can hear that scandal challenge answer, right? The scandal is Jesus is hanging out with the wrong kind of people. The Pharisees come and challenge him, and then he answers. Okay. Second scene, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Some people see that the disciples of Jesus are not fasting, and they come up and say, hey, the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. John's disciples are fasting. How come your disciples aren't fasting? Why are they eating all the time? And Jesus says, well, there's the challenge. You hear that? Scandal and challenge. Jesus says, his answer, the wedding guests wouldn't fast while the bridegroom was there, right? You're having a wedding feast. You don't fast. Someday, the bridegroom is going to be taken away, and they're going to fast then. But for now, the bridegroom's here, so they're not fasting. And then he uses two illustrations, which kind of help uh, point to how he doesn't fit into the religious system that the Pharisees are trying to fit him into. Uh, the first one is he says, you can't sew a new patch onto an old garment because um, you know an old garment's already stretched out. You put a new, fresh patch on there, and whenever you wash it the first time, that new patch shrinks, and it rips the, the fabric even worse than it was torn before. And then he uses the illustration of, of wine and wineskins. And if you know anything about how wine is made, uh, when you put grape juice into a, a container, uh, as it ferments, it creates carbon dioxide, which is air, right? And so it swells up whatever container it's in. And so if you put new wine into an old wineskin that's already been stretched out, then that wineskin will just burst open and spill your wine everywhere. So Jesus uses those two examples to say, I can't fit into the system that you're trying to fit me into. Scandal, challenge, answer. Third story, third scene. Uh, verses 23 through 28 of chapter 2. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. And as the disciples are walking, they're kind of hungry, right? You're walking. Maybe it's warm. It's afternoon. They didn't have a good lunch. Uh, so they're plucking heads of grain off the, the crops there in the field. And the Pharisees swoop in and say, hey, why are your disciples doing something that's unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers them, right? See the scandal, see the challenge, here's the answer. Don't you know how David ate the bread of the presence when he was running from Saul in the wilderness? Right? He's, he's fleeing and he comes into the tabernacle and he eats bread that only the priests were supposed to eat. And he shared it with his companions. And then Jesus gives these two statements, which are huge. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about them when we get there. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All right, fourth scene. You ready? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus enters the synagogue. He's done this before. He's probably come in there to teach. There's a man there who has this withered hand, some kind of deformity. The Pharisees are watching. Is Jesus going to heal this guy? Right? Because it's a Sabbath day. He shouldn't be healing. Jesus apparently perceives their thoughts, and before they can even challenge him, <laughs> they don't get the words out of their mouths. Uh, he anticipates and answers it. He says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Nobody answers him. Jesus is angry at their hardness of heart, the text says, and he heals the man. And the Pharisees respond by getting up and leaving and going to make a plot on how they can destroy this Jesus guy. 
All right, so four scenes. Hopefully that gave you a quick overview. You can have these, these four moments in your head, and you can see the scandal, challenge, answer pattern at play here. And you can probably also pick up on some of the key themes that are here in this text. Do you see it? Jesus is interacting with religious authorities. That's huge. And in each one of these interactions, Jesus is showing how he doesn't fit into their traditional religious box. Whatever they think religion is supposed to look like, Jesus doesn't fit into that. He's much bigger, much better than their religion is. So, if I wanted to say, here's the thing you come away with from this passage today, here's what I'd say, and you can write this down if you want to. I'll say it a couple of times just to make sure you hear it. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man comes up against self-righteous religiosity, his authority confuses, his authority frustrates and uh, overpowers and devastates empty tradition. And it frustrates and overpowers and devastates hypocritical legalism too. Big words there. Let me say it one more time. When the Son of Man comes up against self-righteous religiosity, his authority confuses, frustrates, overpowers, and devastates empty tradition and hypocritical legalism. All right, now, um, y'all go ahead and cancel your lunch plans, and we're going to dive into these four moments in the ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. All right, it's the calling of, of Levi. We know him as Matthew in some of the other Gospels. Uh, he's the guy who authored the Gospel of Matthew, uh, one of the apostles of Jesus. We're going to see that next week when, when the apostles are all named. And this scene is familiar to us because if you remember back in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, we saw Jesus doing something very similar. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees some fishermen. Right? He sees Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uh, and he calls them in the same way. He says, follow me, and they come and they follow him. Um, so this Jesus calling a disciple, the disciple gets up and follows. Jesus' authority is on display for us. But this time, notice that Jesus isn't calling fishermen. Calling fishermen was surprising because they were just ordinary guys. There's nothing special about a fisherman. Um, but this time, he's calling a tax collector, which wasn't just surprising. It was actually scandalous. Um, tax collectors in the time of Jesus, if you can believe this, tax collectors at the time of Jesus had an even worse reputation than an IRS agent has for us today. Um, The Roman Empire, here's how it works, they they basically took bids. So they would say, set up a governor over a certain area, and then that governor would take bids and say, hey, which one of you thinks you can get the most tax revenue out of your town for us? And different guys would be like, oh, well, this is an opportunity to make some money. Uh, And so they would say, I think I could get this much, or I can get this much. The governor would pick whoever gave the highest bid, and then give them a quota and say, get us this much tax revenue. Anything over that, you get to keep. It's a sweet deal for the tax collector, and really for nobody else. And so since most tax collectors were people who were living in that area, they end up becoming a tax collector, and they're collecting taxes from people that they knew, their own people, their community. If it was a Jewish community, it was probably a Jew who was their tax collector. So people in the town viewed tax collectors as traitors, really, right? They're turncoats. They're supporting this uh, oppressive government by taxing 
their own people, stealing from hardworking people. And it was, in a sense, it was kind of, I mean, it was state-sponsored theft because the Roman Empire would protect the tax collectors, right? They would have armed guard if needed uh, to make sure they were getting their tax revenue. And all the time, these tax collectors are making lots of money, some of the wealthiest guys in their town because of all of the money they're stealing, basically, from everybody else. So when Jesus calls a tax collector, it's not just like surprising, like, oh, that's an interesting choice. It's like, what? This is scandal. It's shocking. It's offensive. Um, think of maybe for us, it'd be like, you know, the president picking um, the kingpin of a drug cartel to be one of his advisors, right? That's like, what? Why would you do that? But then, not only does this, this Jesus call a traitor to be his follower, right? We, we could maybe excuse that away. Well, maybe, maybe it's just that Jesus wants to reform him. He's going to help him get fixed. So he's like, come follow me, and I'm going to show you how to live your life right. But no, he doesn't just like, call him to follow. He then goes to his house and has a party and invites a bunch of other tax collectors and other sinners to come hang out with him. Um, look at verse 15. And as he reclined at the table, that word recline indicates that they're feasting. They're not just sitting at the table to have a meal. They're there for a while. There's, this is three courses. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. All right, we don't know who those sinners are, but the tax collectors, at least, are there. And based off what we know from the rest of the Gospels, we know kind of who some of the sinners are that Jesus hung out with, right? They're at least like non-observant Jews, they're not following the, the law as they should. Um, maybe there's some Gentiles there. Maybe there are some prostitutes there. Whoever's there, they're unclean people. They're, they're, Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells, you might say. And the scribes of the Pharisees do not approve. Look at verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, why was it an issue for Jesus to be eating with his people? Well, let's just make that clear first. I mean, we might say today, well, bad company corrupts good morals, right? He's hanging out with the bad kind of people, and they're going to influence him to, to be a bad guy. Okay, no. For an observant Jew... Sharing a meal with somebody who was unclean would make you unclean. And if you're unclean, you're excluded from religious life. So you don't get to do the stuff that makes you connected to God. So for a a rabbi, which Jesus was, a teacher of the Torah, for him to come and recline around the table with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, that would make him unclean ceremonially. So he should be, like, standing up and teaching them, this is how you are to get clean so that you can come before the Lord um, from a distance. He should be teaching them that. But he definitely shouldn't be hanging out at their house and eating with them. And look how Jesus responds to them. They don't even speak to Jesus directly, right? You notice that they come up and they ask the disciples, why is he doing this? And Jesus responds. And there's some irony here. Listen to the irony in, in what he says. You're going to notice irony in each one of these situations. Jesus is full of it. Jesus makes this really obvious statement to them. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Um, So what he's saying is, I'm the great physician. We know this, right? He's the great physician. He's come to heal, to restore people, 
who are spiritually sick and broken. But the irony here is that the scribes and the Pharisees think that they're well. They don't think they're sick. They don't think they need a doctor. Right? Look, he, look what he says. He says, I've come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. The Pharisees think that they're the righteous. When in reality, their opposition to Jesus puts them in a far worse position than the tax collector who's having a meal with him. So what we see is a self-righteous religious system attempting to accuse Jesus, but, but he shows that his authority is greater than their system. Their, their legal system can't contain the Son of God. All right, let's look at the second scene, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, fasting. Everybody knows what fasting is? Fasting is when you don't eat for a period of time. Um, you sacrifice consuming food, and that goal, the idea of it, is, is it really a good thing, right? It's this idea of denying yourself something so that God becomes your everything, right? Recentering yourself on who he is and his sustaining of you um, so that you can deny it. And maybe it's not always food, right? We might fast from certain activities or, or things that we just like in general. Um, we're actually during the season of Lent. Um, some people may observe that, where it's a season of fasting from something, choosing something that you deny yourself so that you can refocus um, and set your heart on, on a love for God and greater love for his word. So fasting, not a bad thing in and of itself, okay? Um, but it was really common at this time for the Pharisees um, and other religious people to fast often, twice a week, three times a week. Um, and we know that John the Baptist was definitely big on the fasting thing. We see him, him doing that regularly. I would probably fast too if all I was eating was grasshoppers. I don't know. Um, but based on the actual letter of the law, based on what God actually told the people to do, God only required one fast a year. On the Day of Atonement was the only time he ever said, this is when you're going to fast. But the Pharisees were real good at this. They were like, hold on. If fasting one time is good, then fasting all the time would be even better. So let's fast as often as we can, and we'll get holier. It's, I mean, really, it's not illogical, I don't guess. Um, but they notice we're increasing our devotion <laughs> And Jesus' disciples are feasting all the time. Those dudes are always partying. So some people come up to Jesus. We learn actually in another, another gospel that these some people who come up and ask him this question are actually disciples of John. Um, and they ask him, why aren't your disciples fasting? Here's what Jesus says to him, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. All right, now Jewish weddings were a big deal. How many, has anybody ever been to, to like a um, Hispanic wedding? Something closer to, um, to what a Jewish wedding would have been. It's, it's not just like a, a one-day kind of thing where you go and it's like, okay, we have our little 15-minute ceremony uh, and then an hour-long Maybe maybe two hours if we're really partying, right? Uh, reception to follow uh, with some nice cake and some hors d'oeuvres, pleasantries. Okay, good. No, uh, a Jewish wedding was a week-long party, 
right, where people, the whole town was pretty much invited. We're, we're drinking, we're dancing, we're eating. It's a great time. It's a big party. So Jesus is asking these people who know what a wedding's supposed to be like. They're saying, he's saying, would it make any sense for you to go to a wedding and fast? The obvious answer is no, that'd be silly, right? You're missing out. What kind of dummy would go to a party and not eat anything? A wedding is a time for feasting, not for solemn fasting. But Jesus says, but the day is coming when the bridegroom is going to be taken away. And notice that word taken. He doesn't say there's coming a day when the bridegroom's going to leave. He says there's coming a day when the bridegroom will be taken away. And on that day, it will be proper to fast. But right now, while the bridegroom's here, the wedding guests should be having a party. And we know when he says taken away, he's pointing towards his crucifixion. He's pointing towards Calvary. And then at that point, right, there is fasting. There is a time of of solemn, like, longing for Jesus. But Jesus says that right now while he's here with his people, the wedding guests, we should be fasting with him. Now for us, think of us now as church-aged believers, Church age, if you want to use that phrase. Fasting's fine. It's good. It's helpful. Uh, it has its place. But, um, and I'm quoting Meyer again, he says, Fasting dishonors God if we regard it as a work that will win Christ to be our bridegroom. No amount of fasting, praying, and obeying can make us acceptable to God. Fasting actually dishonors God too when we forget that it has an expiration date. So right now there's a place for fasting as we wait for our bridegroom to return, to take his bride, right? Someday there's going to be this huge wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's no more fasting then. The bride of Christ will be united in perfect union with him, and this feast will be a, a huge party. That's not a time for fasting either. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. And this kind of seems off. It seems kind of weird. Because if you're just reading through it, these two little parables that he does after the bridegroom thing seem almost out of place. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? He just gave a perfect answer to them about the bridegroom. And then he gives these two little parables almost um, about cloth and wineskins. And it's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Well, let's let's see what he's talking about. This is actually, if I had to pick, this is the core of this text today. Like, if we're really, like, narrowing in on what is it that, that Jesus is saying that's speaking to us the most, I think these two parables say it, say it the best. Let's listen to it. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a new kingdom. I'm bringing a new covenant, a new promise, something that is new. You see that new in old language where he says, piece of unshrunk cloth, that's new cloth on an old garment, new wine and old wineskins. Okay? He's saying, I'm bringing the new, and the new can't just like be mixed in with the old. They don't work well together. Jesus can't just be an accessory to your old way of doing things. He's not just like an, an add-on, like, oh, let's just, you know, 
we have this plus Jesus. Even better now, right? This thing that we have already is really good. We'll just add some Jesus on top. That's like the perfect cake we could make. Jesus is saying that the old tradition, the the metaphor he uses there, the old tradition can't stretch far enough to accommodate what he's bringing, to accommodate the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. So step back for just a second. Two stories so far, feasting and fasting. Okay, Jesus says, he agrees with the religious authorities. There's a time for both, for feasting and for fasting. They just kind of disagree about when the time is for both of those things. And Jesus is saying, I came to feast with sinners, not to fast with Pharisees. He came to save sinners, not to save righteous people. And ultimately, he came and gave his life for sinners, not for righteous people. Uh, just so you know, there aren't righteous people. If you're thinking like, oh, how unkind of him to not die for righteous people. Yeah, there aren't any. So Jesus is saying, these religious acts, these, these religious things that you have here, they're really empty. Not just empty, but they're excluding the actual power and authority that makes them effective at all. Your religion is useless without Jesus. You can't just add him into it. He has to replace it. All right, the third scene. Jumping into the Lord of the Sabbath section now. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so let's clarify exactly what the Pharisees had a problem with here. Your immediate thought may be, oh, they're stealing. That's kind of what it looks like to us, right? They're walking through this field that's not theirs, and they're plucking heads of grain. But based on Jewish law, that's not the issue. Um, in Deuteronomy 23, it says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you are not to put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Israel had many laws that they, we kind of call the gleaning laws that dealt with how you could do this kind of thing in your fields, right? You know, like, for example, one of the gleaning laws you may know about is from the story of Ruth and Boaz, where uh, the reason that Ruth meets Boaz is because she's gleaning in the corners of his field, which there was a law that allowed for widows to come and glean the corners off the fields of, of people, right? They were supposed to not harvest that portion and leave it there for the poor people and the widows. Okay, so there are all these laws that cover this. This, this is covered. The disciples aren't breaking a law by plucking the heads of the grain. The issue here There's two possible issues, and both of them come down to the Sabbath, okay? So we have to understand the importance of the Sabbath. In our world today, we, I think, to our demise in some ways, um, disregard the Sabbath as legalistic. Uh, But for Israel, the Sabbath was huge. God makes a really big deal about the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment, and... For those of you who have been Bible recapping, you'll remember recently in Numbers, we saw that story of the guy who got stoned for picking up some sticks on the Sabbath. It's a serious thing. So the grain isn't the issue. The Sabbath is the issue. Since the disciples were plucking this grain on the Sabbath, they're reaping in some sense, and that's doing work. And you can't do that on the Sabbath according to the Pharisees' law. 
And second thing, second possible issue here, it says they were going through the grain fields. You see that, that language? Which means that they're walking. And there was a law, God's law said that you're not supposed to make a journey on the Sabbath. Now, it's not very clear what a journey is, so the Pharisees were like, well, let's make sure we don't make a journey. What would be a journey? Let's say 2,000 paces. That sounds good. So they said anything over 1,999 paces constituted a journey and therefore was against the law on the Sabbath. So maybe the disciples had taken a few steps too far. I don't know. Either way, they're breaking the Sabbath. And notice how quickly these Pharisees pop up, right? They're waiting. They're just watching and waiting. They swoop in. The purity police, they're here. Don't worry. We got this, guys. Infraction number one. Maybe you know people like that. I don't know. Listen how Jesus responds, verse 25. He says to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. I love this. This is such a Jesus thing to do. Like You can hear his, his sarcastic tone a little bit, can't you? The Pharisees, why are your disciples doing something that's unlawful? And he says, why well, haven't you read the Bible? That's, that's, that's kind of what you hear. Of course they'd read David. The Pharisees had Samuel memorized. They know the story of David inside now, especially David. He's their dude. Like, he's everything. King David was the guy. They knew the story of David. Jesus isn't really asking them if they know the story, right? He's pointing out the irony here was what he's doing. These teachers of the law know God's word, but they're getting schooled by Jesus because their self-righteous attitude is taking what knowledge they have and misapplying it. They're not, they're not understanding it correctly. So he takes a story about their guy, about David, the king whose throne would last forever, the, the one from whom the Messiah is going to one day come. And he says, don't you remember your boy David, how he ate that bread of the presence that he wasn't supposed to eat? He wasn't allowed to do that, and he gave it to his friends too. It was okay for well, you think it was okay for David to do that because he was hungry and because he was going to be king? But notice, like, Jesus isn't making an excuse. He's not saying, but, 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 but David did it too. No, he's citing David as a precedent. He's saying, you guys hold David up on this platform and you think he's wonderful and awesome and you're saying, I can't do something similar? Don't you know my authority? Notice he makes this this vital point there in verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so Jesus is making the point. The Sabbath is not something for man to serve. The Sabbath was created by God to serve man. It's a gift from God intended for our good to bless us. It's a blessing, not a burden. Keeping the law, all of the law, was intended for Israel's good. The Pharisees were so caught up in keeping the Sabbath that they were missing the whole purpose of the Sabbath. I mean, what are they doing? How are they spending their Sabbath? They're sitting in a grain field watching and waiting for Jesus to do something wrong. 
The key error that the Pharisees made, though, like isn't just a misunderstanding of the Sabbath. They're misunderstanding who Jesus is. They don't get who he is. He makes that clear when he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, if you know this term, Son of Man, we'll probably talk about it more. Jesus uses this term all the time to refer to himself. It's his favorite way of talking about himself. And this term is rooted in Daniel chapter 7, which I won't take time to read all of today, but you can check it out, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. In that passage, Daniel says he has this vision where... uh, the, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds and that He's bringing this dominion and glory and a kingdom. It's everlasting dominion. It's this kingdom that will never be destroyed. Okay, Son of Man is equal to Messiah. That, combined with Jesus' reference to David as the precedent for His Sabbath superseding, this is clearly Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. And I... I don't know if the Pharisees caught it, but they would have to have been really, well, they were really blind, so maybe they did. You'd have to be pretty stupid to not see this. Straight up. Jesus is making it really clear. He's pointing to David. He's saying son of man. For someone who is a student of the Old Testament, that should have yelled at them, he's claiming to be the Messiah. And maybe it did, and that's probably why they hated him so much. So Jesus is saying, even if, Even if mankind were intended to serve the Sabbath, even if the Sabbath was basically the idol that we were to fall down and worship, even if that was the case, even if we were supposed to bend over backward, maybe not bend over backward on the Sabbath, that might be too much work, even if we were supposed to do whatever we could to build a fence around every possible infraction, don't build a fence either, that's breaking Sabbath, okay, whatever, if the whole point of the Sabbath was to exhaust everybody with nitpicking little details of legalism, Even if that were the case, Jesus would still have the authority to overcome and supersede that Sabbath law because guess what? He made it. He's God. God made the Sabbath. He instituted it. So Jesus is Lord over it. All right, now we come to this final scene. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. All right, we see this group again, probably the Pharisees. It doesn't say that outright, but it's pretty clear. They're sitting in the synagogue. Jesus comes in probably to teach as we've seen him doing before. And he knows there's this man there with a deformed hand. The Pharisees know it. Jesus knows it. And according to Pharisee law, this is not according to law of God. Let me make that clear. Pharisees law it was okay to perform life-saving work on the Sabbath, okay? So, uh, if your friend was bleeding out, um, you could tie a tourniquet. Your kid's choking, you can do the Heimlich. Those are cool. But, you broke your arm? Sorry, man, we're going to have to wait till tomorrow to set that. Can't do it on the Sabbath. That is not life-saving, so you'll just have to hurt for a little while. Sorry. Yeah, I know, it's kind of crazy, right? So a withered hand, like this man had, is not life-threatening. He's probably lived with it for a long time. And therefore, that's off-limits for Sabbath healing. No, no, no. Can't heal that on the Sabbath. So they've set the trap. Here's the bait. Is Jesus going to take it? 
Verse 3, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And we're all like panicking with him, right? Because if you're there and you have a deformity, the last thing you want is to be called up in front of everybody. Um, But what does he do? He gets up and he walks up there. He obeys Christ. Verse 4, And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. All right, so the man is standing there with his deformed hand, and Jesus asked the question to the Pharisees who were there, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Jesus is getting at the heart of the law. It's what he always does. Um, As Meyer puts it, the law is the expression of doing good and condemning evil, so it's hard to imagine the law condemning doing good. Healing is obviously a good thing. So it's not only permissible to heal on the Sabbath, it's right to heal on the Sabbath. This question should have been a no-brainer. Anybody who, who had a brain should be able to tell you, yeah, uh, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and it's not lawful to do harm any day of the week. But nobody answers him. These educated elite are silenced before the question of Jesus. In verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So Jesus responds to their silence in two ways, with anger and with action. He's angry at their hardness of heart because only a heartless a hard-hearted person would say it's not right to do good on the Sabbath. Only someone whose religion is all about keeping rules and abiding by stipulations, um, only someone who is more concerned with theological correctness and legal requirements and purity laws, only somebody like that would be indifferent to this human need. Is that really what's most important to you, Pharisees? And Jesus is angered by that hypocrisy. And in the face of their indifference, he takes action. He does what is right, what is good. He heals this man with his word. How do the Pharisees respond? Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I mean, you, you can feel the irony These people were expecting Jesus to come in and heal. They were expecting it. They recognized his power. They recognized his authority, at least at some level, right? And they're so concerned with the Sabbath obedience that they miss the power of Christ on display. And do you remember the second part of Jesus' question? He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They were so incensed that Jesus would break the Sabbath by healing that they used their Sabbath to go make a plot to kill him. You've heard the phrase, like, you miss the forest for the trees. These guys are missing the Savior for the Sabbath. Okay, so what do we do with this? We have four scenes. Let's bring it all together. First, we absolutely see the authority of Jesus Huge. 
His authority is there to call disciples, to eat with whoever he wants to, uh, to skip fasts if he wants to, to supersede the Sabbath if he wants to. We also see the opposition of the religious authorities culminating in this plot to destroy Jesus. But here's the thing. Within the opposition of these self-righteous, super-religious people, with their opposition to the authority of Jesus, what Mark is really placing before us is a stunning mirror. I joke with Jared all the time that he gets really fired up anytime a text deals with the older brother. And y'all may have noticed this. Pay attention next time. Anytime we're dealing with, you know the story of the prodigal son, right? And the younger brother comes back, and the older brother is angry because dad's throwing a party for his little brother. And his reasoning is really simple. He's like, I've been really good. He's been really bad. How come you love him so much? And these four scenes feature a bunch of older brothers. You can hear them. They're like, ugh. Why is Jesus eating with those guys? Those people. He's hanging out with those people. Who are Jesus' disciples? Who do they think they are? They think they're too good to fast like everybody else? I tell you what, I can't believe those disciples. They're just plucking grain on the Sabbath day. Jesus just let him do it. He didn't even say anything. Who does that Jesus think he is healing on the Sabbath day? Maybe that sounds familiar to you. The sad truth is this. When we look at these four scenes, when we look at ourselves in our southern Bible belt, we realize that most of us are far more like the scribes and the Pharisees than we are like the tax collectors and sinners. And notice who Jesus embraces and who Jesus condemns. We sure do like to point to the scribes and Pharisees and talk about how bad they are. We can't believe how awful they are rejecting Jesus like that when we're actually an awful lot like them. Right? We think we're really holy because we don't hang out with bad people. We think we're so holy because we pray and we fast and we read the Bible Every day even. We're at church every single Sunday. We don't do any work on Sunday, mind you. Right? We don't even go out to eat. We know God's word. Oh yeah, we've read the Bible. Read it twice all the way through. Sure have. We preach the word of God here at our church. Only the word of God. The Bible is everything to us. And you should see our doctrine. Boy, it's right. It's good. We know every theological big old Greek term, and we can tell you where we stand on every one of them, and it's right. Where we stand is right. I'll tell you right now. We, each of us, we have jobs in our church. We do six different things, serving six different ministries and other ministries here in our local area. Absolutely. We tithe faithfully, pre-tax, mind you, tithe faithfully, pre-tax, and then give a little extra at the end of the year because God's been so good to us. And then we don't let our kids watch bad movies or listen to bad music or hang out with bad people, and we don't watch bad movies either. We don't give a dime to any of those godless companies that are promoting sin and we vote for republicans god bless america but how often do we shun somebody because of their past how often do we judge somebody because of how they look how much money they make where they came from who they hang out with how often do we look down on someone because our spiritual discipline is just so much better than theirs 
How often do we hold up some legalistic idea because, well, that's just what we have always done. How often do we think, yeah, I kind of have earned God's favor a little bit. I'm pretty darn good. How often do we point at somebody's splinter, their little splinter sin, and totally miss the plank sticking out of our eye? R.C. Sproul said this, Like the Pharisees, we create rules that we can keep instead of obeying the rules that God actually gives us, which are much more difficult to follow. When Jesus answers the scribes and the Pharisees in, this, in these scenes, he's answering your self-righteous selves too. He's saying to each of us, I came to call sinners, and guess what? You're one of them. You aren't well, you're sick. You need me to heal you. So quit acting so holy, humble yourself, and come actually follow me instead of just telling everybody that you do. He's saying, I've brought something new and wonderful, but it can't fit into your legalistic tradition. I'm not a new patch that you can just sew onto your filthy, worn-out garment of self-righteousness and be like, look how pretty it looks now. No, I'm going to rip it to pieces. He's saying my kingdom's new wine, and you can't put it in your old wineskins of tradition and legalistic piety because I'm going to blow them to pieces. He's saying, you know my word. You know all about David, but you don't know me. Haven't you noticed that that Bible you love so much is all about me? He's saying you think your doctrine's so perfect, your theology's exact, but you don't have any love, so it's pointless. You think you're doing good, but you're actually doing harm to so many other people and to yourself, ultimately. Your hypocrisy is leading you to destruction. You're mad about those people over there. You have plenty of your own sin problems. Look at yourself. Because here's the thing, when the Son of Man comes up against our self-righteous religiosity, His authority confuses us. It frustrates us. It overpowers us. It devastates all of our empty tradition and our hypocritical legalism. So I'll tell you, bow before his authority now. Humble yourself before the majesty of King Jesus. Embrace the glory of that new covenant that he's bringing. Enjoy the new wine. Take the new robe. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your pride. Repent of your judgmental nature. Repent of your hypocrisy. Run to the great physician who can heal you. Run to the bridegroom. Run to the Son of Man, the Messiah. Run to the Lord of the Sabbath. Put your faith in, in Jesus, not in what you can do. Put your faith in Him now. And follow Him Follow him. Let's pray. Lord God, you, um, your word is a mirror for us. And we, we are convicted by the word that you have given to us that shows our self-righteous hypocrisy on display. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that we are the good guys. Forgive us for 
our judgment. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our hypocrisy. Lord, plant in us humility, love for one another, patience. Help us to trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. May we bring him glory and fame. In his name we pray, amen. Well, stand with me. We're going to do the Lord's Supper together. Each week we do this.